story I often tell uh, is one about a man who was traveling through the forest and as he turned a bend in the road uh, he saw there right in front of him a rather strange unexpected sight it was a tiger a great big tiger that had somehow gotten trapped into a la- rather small cage meant perhaps for smaller creatures it found itself somehow in the cage and as man neared the cage rather My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as international ministries director for Langham. Today, Chris talks with Dr. Havila Danaramraj. She lives and serves in a sensitive South Asian country where believers often face pressure and persecution for their faith. But this is where she is at work training and mentoring the next generation of pastors and leaders through her teaching and writing. Through their conversation, we'll learn about building bridges between cultures and what we can learn from the church in South Asia. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to On Mission. I'm Chris Wright, and today I have a very special pleasure of talking with Dr. Havila Dharamraj from South Asia. Welcome, Havila. Thank you. Havila has been teaching at a, a major seminary in South Asia for quite a number of years. Uh, she has been the professor of Old Testament there and still is. She was the academic dean for seven years and is now the head of biblical studies. But before we come to that part of your career, Havila, it would be lovely just to start with your family and your childhood and perhaps just tell us how you came to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I am a fourth generation Christian. Uh, so I was born into a Christian family and being an only child, I got taken uh, off to every meeting that went on in our church, the Sunday evening meetings, the gospel meetings, you name it. Uh, I went with my parents and I became interested in the Old Testament. Uh, but I had to wait for a long, long time before I could come back studying the Old Testament um, uh, in a seminary. I went on from there to study uh, biochemistry and I taught chemistry at high school uh, for almost a decade uh, before the desire to study Bible, particularly Old Testament, began to grow and uh, God made 
an open door for me to be able to come study uh, my MA and then go on to a PhD in the University of Durham in the UK um, through Langham. And uh, after that, I returned to uh, my seminary to teach Old Testament and to write. It's a wonderful story, and we'll hear a little bit more about it in a moment. But in fact, uh, I ought to tell our listeners that they can read something of your life story in a blog that you wrote, which is on the Langham Literature website, langhamliterature.org. If they go to the blog part and search your name, there's a, a wonderful story there. What what might have happened, do you think, if you'd gone on teaching chemistry rather than moving into theology? It's, it's an interesting hypothetical kind of question. Um, while I was in class, of course, there was chemistry and a little bit of biochemistry even to teach. But outside of class, uh, sitting under the mango tree during the short breaks and the lunch breaks and talking to students, um, I, I, I think that in retrospect is what I consider uh, my ministry. Uh, long after I had taught a particular student, I remember he came back and uh, reminded me of those conversations under the trees during the breaks. And he said, uh, do you remember, ma'am, all those God shots you used to give us? And I thought, really? <laughs> Did I do God shots? <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I realize now in retrospect what uh, uh, valuable ministry it was to be able to uh, uh, have conversations with young people at such an impressionable um, stage of their lives. Mm. I think I think that's a point also we forget is that as Christians we are teaching all the time and sometimes it's in a classroom, sometimes it's behind a podium. You have a love for stories, obviously of the Bible stories and narratives, but your culture in South Asia also loves stories. And I've often heard you using animal fables from your own background and culture as a way of expressing profound truths, some of which are very biblical and theological. Would you like to talk about that as a means of communication and perhaps give us an example? Uh, right. Now, storytelling is a uh, rich and deep and vast heritage in this part of the world. And uh, we have uh, different genres of um, storytelling. We have folk tales, uh, but we also have fables. Fables are where you have non-human actors, animals, sometimes even trees, uh, even uh, the sun and the moon and the stars. They become actors in the story. Uh, the fact that I did my PhD in narrative uh, led me into all these other related fields, uh, narrative theology being one of them, but also narrative preaching and uh, storytelling. In fact, I have three students now in the seminary where I work that are pursuing their PhDs in these areas of interest. And so that makes me so excited that I'm able to enthuse the next generation to uh, pursue uh, the and to discover the heritage that we have in this part of the world. Um, a, a story I often tell uh, is one about a man who was traveling through the forest. And as he turned a bend in the road, uh, he saw there right in front of him a rather strange, unexpected sight. It was a tiger, a great big tiger that had somehow gotten trapped into a rather small cage, meant perhaps for smaller creatures. It found itself somehow in the cage. And as a man neared the cage rather apprehensively, 
the tiger called out to him and said, oh, could you please, please help me get out of this cage. And the man said, let you out. <laughs> you must be joking. After all, you're a tiger. And the tiger said, look, I know I'm a tiger, but if you would kindly let me out, I will be so grateful to you that you will find me to be a friend for the rest of my life. The man thought about it for a bit and he was so moved by the piteous pleas of the tiger that he unlatched the door of the cage and the tiger sprang out. And the minute it got out, the tiger just went right back to being a tiger. The man now didn't know what to do. He knew that his life was very quickly going to come to an end uh, in the form of a nice little snack for tiger. And just as he was giving up hope, there came a fox. And the man immediately turned to the fox and said, oh, fox, please, can you do something? Uh, here I'm, I am having saved a tiger. And look, the tiger is about to eat me. And the fox said, oh, this is just the sort of situation that I'm good at. Um, what you need to tell me now is exactly how things were uh, before the situation happened. And so then the tiger jumped in and explained how he had been in the cage and how the man came along and uh, set the whole uh, um, scene in place. And then the fox uh, narrowed his eyes and thought for a bit and said, let me get the facts straight. So here was the tiger coming along the road and the man was in the cage and the tiger said, no, no, no not like that. Let me explain it again. And the tiger explained it again. And then the fox scratched his head and said, now let me get this straight. The cage was in the tiger and the man was coming along. And the tiger, exasperated now because he was wanting to get on with the snack, said, let me just show you how it was. And jumped into the cage. Now you know what happened next. Very quickly, the fox shut the door and the tiger was back where he was. Strategy. I, if there's one thing this story might teach us, among other things, it is about strategizing. Strategizing how to set people free. And I think that is the um, mission that I am on in the work that I do. That is the work that God has entrusted to me. How do we set people free from cages into which they have trapped themselves or systems or people or cultures or politics have trapped them into? How do we set people free? Uh, and that, I think, is the great work of Langham also, whether it is in uh, Langham scholars or Langham preaching or Langham literature. I think this is the great work that we've been entrusted to do, how to set people free. But to set people free, we need to strategize. And that is why we need um, PhDs. That is why we need books. That is why we need training and preaching. How to set people free from the tiger that waits to devour them. Thank you very much, Havila. Now, what? Uh, tell us a little bit about your own cultural background there in South Asia. What, what do you love most about the part of the world where you live? What I enjoy about the culture in which I live is that it is um, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-lingual, uh, and also multi-religious. Uh, 
uh, it's a um, melting pot of uh, so many cuisines and cultures and languages and faiths even. And uh, I think this is a wonderful environment in which uh, to be able to uh, talk to people about differences, uh, whether they're differences in um, language or background or even uh, faith, uh, simply because everybody knows that everybody else is different, uh, it becomes a wonderful starting point to be able to share uh, my journey with Jesus. Mm. So that plurality of, of religion and culture and so on, you actually see as, a, as, as an advantage in some ways for the gospel rather than a hindrance. Exactly. In that respect, do you feel it's a bit like the early church? I mean, who these early believers went out into a, a world, the, the, the Roman Empire of that time, which was a very mixture of all sorts of peoples. It seems to me that your part of Asia has something in common with that. Exactly. Mm. It pushes us to be creative, perhaps, because we're constantly looking for bridges uh, into uh, other people's uh, cultures or subcultures. Uh, and uh, it's amazing how many bridges we can find through uh, stories in the Bible and stories that they might have and um, how we can spring from our subculture into theirs. Uh, there are fascinating and wonderful journeys that you can make in an environment that's so pluralistic. Is there any example you can give of what some of those bridges might be? I can think of friends of mine who were working in one particular tribal part uh, of uh, South Asia where they, where they found that there was a um, practice of taking a goat through the streets of the village annually and then letting it go free. And they believed that this animal carried upon it all the bad luck that might come upon the village in the year following. And they would release the animal out into the wild. We know that there is a wonderful parallel to that in the book of Leviticus. And that immediately makes a bridge. And we don't need to stop at simply drawing the parallels between what the goat does in Leviticus and what the animal would do in this particular tribal culture, we could go on from that to the good news about Jesus, who does so much more than any animal could do. Mm. And does more than just take away bad luck as well. Exactly. <laughs> now, in Asia in general, and, and uh, the whole South Asia region particularly, they, it's not only religious uh, plurality, but there's also a great deal of, of political differences. And uh, what sort of influence do you think the Christian church is having already or can potentially have in, in those circumstances? Being a minority religion in this part of the world, um, Influence in the public spheres is um, not a big thing. There are so few of us uh, in, in percentage uh, that we really don't stand out in the civil services or in the police services or definitely not in politics. But I think we can ride on the shoulders of those who 
who first came to this part of the world bringing the good news of Jesus and engaged seriously in two very specific areas. One is healthcare and the other is education. So these two have become a testimony or a witness uh, to the faithful witness or the faithful presence, shall we call it, uh, of um, those who are followers of Christ. And these are areas in which there is still work to be done. These are endeavors that will never lose their relevance in this country. And I think it is faithful, trusting presence that will enable us to be an influence in this part of the world. And you speak of, obviously, of education and, and, and medical work. Those are what you might call institutional. Is there also a place for just ordinary individual Christian believers being what Jesus called salt and light, just where they are simply by being men and women of integrity and truth and honesty and love and compassion and so on? I mean, is, is that also a way in which the church has an impact in society? Oh, definitely. Uh, uh, I, I have heard so many times the um, friends of mine who, who work in the um, public uh, sphere uh, coming back with testimonies like this. Um, people come up to them, people of other faiths come up to them and say, look, I can trust you to be a man of integrity. Please, can you help me get this done? Uh, so that continues to be the way we can witness uh, wherever we might be working, whether that's in the corporate world or in more traditional professions, that continues to be our witness. I think it always has been ever since the New Testament and uh, is part of the way we are called to be as, as Christian believers. Mm. Havila, you have travelled quite a bit uh, in the West. You've spoken at conferences and preached and taught and so on. Do you find that uh, people here in the West uh, are open to the kind of Bible teaching that you bring? Do people listen? Uh, I think they do. And uh, one comment particularly comes to mind. I remember after um, I had done an exposition of the um, story of how uh, Jacob marries uh, Leah and uh, Rachel, uh, I remember uh, someone coming up to me and saying, I didn't realize how impoverished we are in the West culturally when it comes to understanding the culture in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And it amazes me how you, as a South Asian, were able to jump so quickly from your culture into the culture of the Old Testament. Uh, and I thought to myself, that's a huge gift. I never um, forget to remind my students of that huge advantage uh, that they have, whether it is uh, polygamy or the system of bride price and dowry, uh, whether it is how the three widows in the book of Ruth felt uh, as they stood there on that road to Bethlehem uh, weeping. Uh, I remind my students that we can understand all of this uh, so much more readily and easily than perhaps some other cultures which uh, are one whole remove uh, from the world of the, of the biblical text. 
I think that's that is so true that there is something certainly in Asian although Asia of course is a vast continent with so many different cultures but we do need to remind ourselves that the Bible is Asian that it was rooted there in, in the Middle East and that there are so many aspects of biblical culture which are still alive and very very relevant in uh, in Asian cultures I remember when I was teaching in South Asia uh, teaching the, uh, the the Pentateuch and I got the students to read through Leviticus chapter 19 and all the laws that are there about uh, politics, about ethnicity, about economics, about employment, about treating the disabled and so on. And I simply asked, what would it be like in this country if these laws were statute laws here? What difference would it make? And after a while, there was quite a bit of sort of hollow laughter around the room because they realized that they were very relevant and very real uh, in in that particular culture. You've also uh, taught um, biblical teaching in the West, in the West. I remember just a couple of years ago that you came to the Keswick Convention, which is a, a major and very ancient Bible teaching convention in England. And as well as giving uh, two of the evening Bible expositions, you taught uh, five seminars on the Song of Solomon. And I remember that the church was quite full listening to you teaching uh, on a part of the Bible which is so often neglected. Why did you choose that? And what? Did, how did you find those particular seminars and, and the reaction that you got? My interest in the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, actually came out of another project that we had completed in 2015. And that was the South Asia Bible Commentary. This was a single volume commentary by South Asians for South Asians. And um, we can talk about that a little later if we like. Uh, but I was supervising... Uh, a student of mine, a PhD student of mine, write a commentary on the Song of Songs. And he tended to go um, in the direction of interpreting the song in the usual symbolic, um, allegorical, metaphorical fashion uh, as a love song between uh, um, Israel and her God uh, between the church and Jesus. And I thought to myself, mm, I'm sure there's more to that uh, book than that. And so that got me interested in the Song of Songs. And then I went on to write a um, monograph, um, which was entitled um, Altogether Lovely, a thematic and intertextual reading of the Song of Songs. Uh, Thematic in that I looked at four themes running through the book and intertextual in that I tried to put the Song of Songs firmly back into the canon. You know how it sometimes uh, is looked at as a rather odd book and nobody quite knows what to do with it. It sort of uh, sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, this was an endeavor to let the Song of Songs have conversations with four other texts in the Old Testament, mostly prophetic texts like Hosea 2 or um, some chapters in Ezekiel. Uh, so that is where my uh, interest in the Song of Songs led me to that monograph. And so it was um, excerpts from that book that I did at uh, Keswick. And I think what people really loved uh, was um, what wonderful conversations came out of the Song of Songs speaking to other texts in the Old Testament. Mm. One lady at the end in the question time said that 
being with you for that week, she said it felt like being on a honeymoon with Jesus, <laughs> which I thought was a lovely, a lovely combination of, of words. Yes, yeah. we, we certainly very much enjoyed that. Uh, that's right. Um, uh, sometimes people think, oh, um, scholars who are studying Old Testament really um, uh, don't have much to say to 21st century Christians and the 21st century church. But that's not true. That need not be true at all. And that is what I enjoyed most, I think. Uh, bring that study uh, out of the Song of Songs into uh, the present-day context, make it relevant to uh, listeners there at Keswick. Exactly, you certainly did. And it was also wonderful showing people what it, what it was like to dig into the text and to, and to see some of the things in the text that they might otherwise just have passed over and uh, and to feel some of the power of the comparisons and the metaphors and the pictures and, and all of that. It was a, a very wonderful week. As well as uh, doing that kind of Bible teaching, do you think that there are things that the church in South Asia can speak into the churches of the West. What, what do we, we in the West need to hear uh, as part of the voice of the global church from your part of the world? Right. Um, so to answer that question, let me go back to um, uh, two pieces of writing that I've done. One is um, my contribution to the South Asia Bible commentary, and the other is writing up Ruth, uh, for the Asia Bible Commentary series. Now, in uh, both of these works, I used a whole lot of um, proverbs from my region, uh, fables, folk tales, and what's more, we had uh, articles, articles that were particularly specific to this region, articles on, let's say, um, Christ in a multi-religious environment, uh, dowry, caste, and so on. And while I was writing these pieces, I used as test readers uh, some people from the West. And I remember how much they appreciated being able to now read the Old Testament uh, through the eyes of um, someone whose culture was not at all far removed from that of the text. And they said, hearing a South Asian voice reading the um, Bible uh, made the Bible come so much more alive to them. It wasn't a text that was long dead, a culture that was so far removed. It wasn't so much there and then, but how um, it suddenly became so much here and now. And so if there is a contribution that um, South Asians can make uh, uh, to the church in the West, it is perhaps to bring to them Bible expositions, um, commentaries, um, writing um, that makes this happen, that bridges the gap for the Western church uh, between them and the Bible. One of the things that is sometimes said about readings of the Bible from different perspectives or hearing it or seeing it through the eyes of someone else is isn't this all just going to lead to relativism, that it's just whatever you think it means or I think it means? What has happened to, quote, the Bible itself, the, the simple meaning of the text? Doesn't the text just have one meaning? So can you help us to understand what it means to treat the text seriously as a given 
and yet to take seriously that we all read it in our own context and necessarily read it through our own eyes. I do think we've moved on from the idea that the text can be read only in one um, correct way. Um, think of the book of Exodus, for example. It's only a culture that knows slavery or knows slavery in its uh, present day forms that is most able to read that text perhaps um, in all its depth and um, pathos even. Um, what we still have in our part of the world today is bonded labor, um, even though it is illegal, it is widely practiced. And I can't think of a better text with which to present Jesus to people like this uh, than Exodus. Even before I introduced them to uh, John or Mark, I think the plague narratives, the salvation story in Exodus, that would show them uh, or introduce them to the God that we want them to know. Thank you. Let's talk just a little bit more about the South Asia Bible Commentary, because I know that uh, you were uh, one of the editors of that as well as a contributor. And just to remind you of a, a wonderful moment back in 2007, when there was a, a regional consultation in uh, South Asia, and I remember Peter Quant, who is the director for Langham Literature, holding up the Africa Bible Commentary, which had just been produced the year before. Uh, and the reaction was exactly what I expected from uh, all my South Asian friends, was a kind of moment of holy jealousy, as if to say, how come the Africans have done this and we haven't? Uh, and that's when the project began and you were involved from the very beginning. So tell us a little bit about that volume, the South Asia Bible Commentary, and why it really is so important. And also, uh, I understand that it has just been also published uh, in this last week in Hindi. Uh, so perhaps you could tell us something about about that. Yeah, as you say, Chris, the beginnings of that uh, project uh, were a good uh, illustration of iron sharpening iron. Uh, Africa had uh, just put out the Afri Africa Bible commentary, and we thought, why not us? Uh, uh, oh, it was uh, such a wonderful project. It took us seven years, really, to get it done. Uh, we had Bible commentaries. Um, uh, we had commentaries on the books of the Bible, but we also had articles. Articles so specific to this region that you couldn't find them in uh, uh, commentaries that were coming out of the West. And here I should say that uh, till the South Asia Bible commentary appeared on the scene, uh, in this part of the world, we being um, colonized once uh, by the British, uh, continue to have this hangover, uh, the hangover that uh, whatever comes out of the West is the best. And so if you went into any Christian bookshop, all you would find would be um, uh, devotional books, commentaries, any Christian literature uh, written by uh, Westerners and nearly always white male scholars. 
And so here was a wonderful opportunity to uh, provide a corrective here. And uh, it was a labor of love. So it's wonderful to publish one volume commentary on the whole Bible, but there's more to be needed, isn't there? What what has happened since uh, as a result of that project? After the South Asia Bible commentary came up in English in the years that uh, followed, we've had multiple translation projects. Uh, So now that commentary is coming out in at least five other languages specific to this region. Languages that are spoken by millions of people. You know, if there's one thing we don't lack in this part of the world, it's uh, people. Uh, so uh, that that has been such a wonderful uh, um, adventure post the um, production of the English uh, South Asia Bible commentary. But there's one more thing we have been able to do, and that is to get started on the South Asia Study Bible. This will be mostly annotations and articles, uh, but again, they will be uh, very uh, specific to the region uh, in terms of approach and language. Uh, We will have uh, South Asian thinkers, we'll have South Asian proverbs. We hope we'll help South Asians read the Bible in a way that they find relevant to their culture, to their context, and to their very specific realities. There's one more thing I want to say about the SASB, the South Asia Study Bible, and and it is that uh, we are very intentionally training the next generation of biblical scholars uh, to be able to do the work that we did uh, five years ago in 2015, uh, when we finished doing the South Asia Bible commentary. So this is a whole generation of people who are now in their late 20s, early 30s, that are doing the work that we did five years ago. And we hope that they have learned the whole business of passing the baton on, and that they will in turn pass this gift forward, the gift of training the next generation. That seems to me to be so important. And it has always uh, impressed me that you personally are very committed to mentoring younger writers, uh, giving them voice, enabling them, helping them and seeing them through. Is that something that you really feel called to do? And why does it give you such satisfaction? Now, there probably is a uh, sexist answer to that question. Uh, uh, observing my male colleagues. I wonder if it is something a female uh, does more readily than men do. Uh, Ever since I got into uh, um, uh, teaching and writing in uh, a seminary, I've constantly found myself looking out for students who can do what I do, uh, who can do what I do even better than me, if possible. So I have so enjoyed right across these last two decades of uh, teaching and writing and even mentoring, helping my uh, protégés, my mentorees pick up those skills. And in fact, I have the satisfaction of uh, at least um, half a dozen eggs being hatched now through the PhD process. And I have the satisfaction of seeing how my mentees are looking out for others to mentor. And this is an exponential thing, isn't it? If I end up having mentored maybe a couple of dozen uh, in my lifetime, in my professional lifetime, I am sure I um, will see um, each of them doing that um, in equal measure. Uh, In fact, I have an interesting um, incident 
to recall at this point. I remember once um, a new student at my seminary coming up to me and saying, you know, ma'am, you teach exactly, um, he said, you know, ma'am, you teach exactly like Sunayana. And I recall that Sunayana was my student who had graduated from my seminary <laughs> and had gone on to teach in a sister college from which this young gentleman had come. And uh, then I thought to myself, you young man are my grand student. <laughs> so I rejoice as much as I rejoice in the one grandchild I have. I rejoice in the dozens and dozens of uh, grand students. I have students who have been taught and mentored by my students. That's a beautiful way of thinking of it as uh, grand, grand students. I like that phrase. I shall, I shall remember that one. It is in some ways, you use this word exponential. We sometimes talk about the multiplication factor in Langham, that when you invest in, in one Langham scholar, you're actually investing in a multiple of, of many factors. In some ways, although it's not such a nice comparison, but that is the way this current uh, COVID virus is spreading. It, it multiplies exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. And I have sometimes said that, that what Langham does is a bit like a benevolent virus. You know, it's, it's a godly spread that multiplies yeah. itself, which, of yeah. course, is what the Apostle Paul told Timothy to do and that he was doing. Uh, so that, that's, that's a wonderful example. Are there, are there any other ways in which you're long, because it is quite a long number of years now that you've been teaching at this major seminary in, in South Asia, that you have seen it impacting the wider region all around there and any other examples of your students who are, uh, in a sense, multiplying yourself in, in, in other places? Yeah, it's this multiplication factor that keeps me motivated in what I do in college um, because we are a premier evangelical institution in our region. We get students not only from um, every part of this subcontinent, but also from our neighboring countries. Uh, we have uh, uh, faculty trainees sent to us from Nepal, from Myanmar, from Thailand. And uh, I know of colleges in these uh, countries that uh, have been almost um, entirely populated faculty wise uh, by those that we have trained, trained at an MTH level or even at a PhD level. And so that gives us great satisfaction. Uh, the multiplication is something that we're able to see with every graduation, even every single year, when we see how our students are able to go to places that um, I would never even be able to travel to, uh, places um, in which languages are spoken that I have uh, no clue about. And uh, so it gives me so much joy and gives me so much satisfaction uh, to see every year uh, how very quietly and um, very powerfully the work of the kingdom continues uh, through what we do in our college. That's great to hear because sometimes people think of theological education in a very different category from the rest of what the church is called to do, you know, as we are mandated by Jesus to make disciples. Uh, and yet it seems to me that what you're saying is that there is a very strong connection between the work of a seminary and your work and the uh, possibility of the churches living and growing and maturing and, and carrying on their influence in society. W would you see that as a, as a, a real and proper connection? Oh, 
very much so. Um, even over the past month, I've been um, uh, supervising a couple of reflection papers, thought papers, even research essays uh, on uh, strategizing for the post-COVID world. And if there isn't a connection between seminary and the world uh, uh, through essays like this, I can't say uh, what is. Um, seminaries are the um, think tanks, the, the powerhouses in which um, strategy can be formulated. And uh, that comes not out of one student's head or one faculty member's head. It comes out of our collective wisdom um, and through the cross-pollination that we have uh, when we work together as partners, as co-laborers, students and faculty together. Uh, and um, I think uh, this whole COVID situation and uh, how much the church uh, can learn from this situation uh, to uh, flourish in a post-COVID world, I think that is what seminaries are about or should be about. Mm. A few moments ago, we were talking about the possibility that your desire to multiply yourself to bear fruit in that way could perhaps be, especially because you're a woman and a mother, and there's something motherly about uh, nurturing and bringing new life. You are a woman, and I'm just wondering, in, in your culture there in South Asia, uh, is your experience normal or common? I mean, it does seem as if you yourself are accepted uh, in your seminary and indeed in your local church as a woman in leadership uh, and in teaching and preaching. And I just wonder, how has that experience been for you? Is it, is it a struggle uh, or, or how does it work? Mm. There's pros and cons to being a woman in a, in a male-dominated discipline like um, uh, theological studies. But I've tried to um, look for advantages and maximize them. Uh, I know that my particular college has been very, very affirming and supportive of me right through my uh, PhD journey. And now as I teach and uh, offer leadership uh, within the college, I can also bear witness to the fact that it is a lonely journey. Perhaps the reason why I often try to pick out women students to mentor is so that perhaps the next generation may not have a journey as lonely as I have had. Um, I know that since uh, uh, I became head of the Department of Old Testament and now the Department of Biblical Studies, I know that uh, women have flocked to these uh, departments, which are traditionally male domain, in much, much larger numbers. In fact, I so enjoyed showing off my women candidates. I'd have them uh, stand up at chapel and perform a song in Hebrew sometimes, uh, just to show them off and to let the community, whether male or female, uh, get used to the fact that women are now in core disciplines, whether it's New Testament, Old Testament, or theology. So this is something that I've really enjoyed doing to help it be an easier journey for the next generation. 
And of course, as we were saying earlier, you have the incredible support of an encouraging husband, Dharam Raj, uh, who strikes me as someone who must regularly recite Proverbs 31 uh, in relation to yourself (laughs) as a a woman of worth, whom he praises, uh, and I've heard him praise you. So uh, it's a very biblical thing to do, to have uh, a supportive husband in your ministry of, of leading and teaching. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, not just one who uh, praises and uh, uh, enjoys uh, whatever I've been able to accomplish, but someone who uh, very dedicatedly prays for me as well. And so I'm so glad that he does that. Mm. Well, let's come to your family, Dharam Rajan. Tell us a little bit then about your children and your grandchild and how things are for you at the moment. Uh, right. Um, Dharam and I, we have uh, two children. Our daughter is now 33 and she's a speech pathologist. Uh, she lives in Phoenix, Arizona because she married someone who went to live in the States. Uh, our son is uh, 30 and uh, he has been working with a um, security company in uh, Israel. Uh, in the area of uh, anti-terrorism intelligence. And uh, right now he is carrying on uh, with um, MPhil in South Asian studies, uh, largely in that same field of interest in the University of Cambridge. Uh, what he will go on to do after that, um, we are not so sure, but waiting for God to uh, show us the possibilities. Mm, uh, our son and his wife uh, have a little son, a uh, three-year-old called Nathan. Mm. Wonderful. And this whole COVID thing, of course, has affected your part of the world uh, severely. Are you and your family surviving that? Are you all right? And how has it affected where you are and where you live? Um, What has happened over this year uh, has been a wonderful wake-up call to the church in my part of the world. Uh, Till now, we used to be largely insulated from the world we lived in. Uh, when I say we, I'm talking about evangelical Protestants mainly. Uh, but this whole experience, the last six months, have given us, um, oh, sh- shall I say, these last six months have pushed us into intentional engagement with those outside the church. Um, local churches have been involved in humanitarian work. Uh, they've been engaging with um uh, government agencies with uh, ngos in their area to see how they can serve uh, people outside the church and i am so looking forward uh, to the church multiplying this kind of work in the post covid scenario uh, because that then will really be uh, what god meant us to do what the kingdom of god is meant to do in the world to be able to serve people in every possible way. Mm. Thank you so much. As we draw to a close, what could we be most praying for you? Um, Before COVID struck, um, I had started thinking about what I want to do with the next phase of my life as uh, I approach uh, retirement age in uh, seminary I'm teaching. Uh, And then COVID did a big um, hold on everything uh, and has given me a whole A lot more time to be thinking, uh, what should I do in the next phase, uh, which will help me to steward well all the gifts that now I um, 
see I have in terms of teaching, in terms of training others to teach, um, in terms of writing, in terms of mentoring. Uh, so I'm waiting to see uh, what God wants me to do in say the next 10 years, the years ahead of me post-retirement. So that's something you could pray with me for. Thank you. Thank you so much, Havila. We're so glad to have been talking to you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. God bless. That's it for today's episode. I'm so grateful for that conversation and how Havila really brings the Old Testament to life for us today. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless.